made eye contact with me. Those intent on disrupting it steadfastly refused to do so. They couldn't look at me directly because if they had, they would have seen another human being. When I first heard this, I was uh, struck, reminded of the importance of when you disagree with someone, when you perhaps are, are, are tempted to, to mistreat someone because of something they say or some viewpoint, we need to remind ourselves that all people are created by God, that our God and our Lord has taken the time and made the decision in his will to create this person, to be an image bearer of God and how much they deserve our dignity and our respect. But in thinking about this, I was reminded of something else, and, and it has to do with this passage here today. It's that when the Lord of glory comes, when Jesus comes again, we read in, in Scripture that there will be those who look up, who straighten up, who stand with confidence and who rejoice. And there will be those who cower, who's, who hide their faces, who refuse to look up because they know that the great day of wrath has come, thinking perhaps that it never would, it has come. So in this passage, Jesus equips us with truth and instruction to live in such a way that we might always be ready for that day, and that we may be among those who would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And if it should be that any of us are on the earth on that great and awesome day, that we, might be, that we might be among those who stand up, who straighten up, who look up into heaven and rejoice, eager to see our Savior come in his great and his awesome glory. A couple of tangible things that Jesus says for us to do here, to be watchful by praying and ultimately to abide in Christ. To be watchful by praying and ultimately to abide in Christ. This is a continuation of last week's passage where uh, we saw Jesus had said the temple is going to be destroyed, the temple in Jerusalem, predicting what would happen in the year 70 AD, which we know uh, certainly did come to take place. But when Jesus said this, the temple is going to be destroyed, uh, the people around him and, and even many of his followers said, well, what are you talking about? When's this going to happen? What are the signs that are going to accompany it? In their minds, these two things would be intimately connected. The destruction of the temple, the end of all things, the end of the age, right? If you're going to destroy the temple to the mind of a pious and righteous Jew, you might as well be destroying the sun. It's, it, it's the end, right? Jesus spent the words in last week's passage showing and teaching the, those listening to him that those two things need not be so intimately connected that indeed when the temple was going to be destroyed in Jerusalem, that did not spell the end of all things. Rather, he gave them a, a frame of thinking for all the things that happen in life when famine and pestilence and wars and rumors of wars come upon you. Do not be frightened. All of these things are going to happen until the end. And then he said, but there will be great signs from heaven. In other words, when that great day comes, you will know for sure. But since he has disconnected these two things, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, he says in verse 20, so when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, which happened in the year 70 AD, Jerusalem was surrounded by Roman armies, Jesus says, run, yet essentially get out of Dodge, run away. 
Try to preserve your life, which uh, historical accounts have Christians doing just that. When Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, they came upon it, and that ultimately was part of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel for rejecting the Messiah. When they were surrounded by Roman armies, there were Christians who, who fled and who spared their life. But there was another lesson in all of this that Jesus said. Not only did Christians follow his advice in 70 AD, but he, he gives this uh, new paradigm for thinking about this life that the, the geographic center of God, that the people of God's worshiping life will be taken away. Right? Jerusalem no longer will be the, the ultimate center of the worshiping life of God's people as it was in the Old Covenant. Rather, In the risen Christ, as we worship God and in in the glories of the risen Christ, by the Spirit, we find our citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem as the gospel goes forth through all of the world and all those who are brought to faith in Christ are made part of the heavenly Jerusalem. But that brings us then to uh, verse 25. And of course, I I should say also that in in the, the course of this passage, uh, Jesus is not taking a, an anti-Israel type of stance, and it should, it, it should absolutely not be that Christians would think that because God exercised a measure of judgment upon Israel in 70 AD that we are to have some kind of anti-Semitic t- type of stance. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11 is very clear to point out that because they were the ones who received those first covenants from God and God made them a, a nation out of the world, called them unto himself, that he's always going to preserve a believing remnant within the nation of Israel, a very special promise. And I believe that it is the, the calling upon the church to make sure that we continue to uh, proclaim the gospel to, uh, to people who are of ethnic Jewish descent and to rejoice in the fact that we have been grafted onto the tree of promise, brought into the, the true Israel, grafted onto that tree, as Paul says in the book of Romans. Uh, but in verse 25, we see a clear shift then once again, the words of Christ, to not the destruction of the temple, but to the end of the age, right? The glorious day, the awesome day of Jesus' return. And what we see right from the beginning of this passage in verse 25 is that this will be a day that no one will miss. This will be a day that everyone will know what is happening. The signs in heaven will be unmistakable and universal. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. We don't know exactly what that means, but it certainly means something awesome, something terrifying. The seas will be tossed into chaos. Tidal waves will probably roar over coastal cities. The result of all of this will be what we see or what we saw last week in Revelation 6. Remember, Revelation 6 is a, a place in Revelation where we see represented the second coming of Christ. And what's going on there is kings and peasants, men and women, rich and poor, they're running to hide themselves. They're running in caves and hiding themselves under rocks because the awesome day of God's wrath has come. And certainly, these things will be terrifying to any reasonable and a rational human being. I mean, think about living on this earth, and every day, one day seems to follow as the next. There's this amazing aspect to to God's providence. The seasons come one after the other. Uh, We kind of know within a couple of, about 60 seconds, when the sun is going to rise, when it's going to set each and every day. And then, in one fell swoop, all of that, 
is going to be swept away. The sun, as it says in Joel, be turned to darkness. The moon will be turned to blood. In a sense, the, the fabric of our reality will be rent apart. It will be a great and awesome day. Certainly a fearful day. But verse 27 tells us specifically what it is that is going to be happening on this day. And God wants to equip his people so that when this day comes, we react differently. No matter who's alive, then we don't know when this day is going to come. But whenever it does, and God will have his church on the earth, that he wants his people to know what is happening and ultimately to Rejoice. We read in verse 27 that it will be the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and with great glory. The Son of Man is a favorite title of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Interesting title. It, it's, a, it's a human figure, right? The Son of Man. It's a human figure, but it's a, a human figure that is given authority to reign and to rule. In a sense, it's a, a human being above all others, a man, a man above other men so to speak. And uh, this title specifically brings us back to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. There, the prophet Daniel uh, sees a vision. He sees one coming like the Son of Man, and a Son of Man uh, goes to the Ancient of Days, God, the Lord of all, and he receives an eternal kingdom, and he is given dominion and power and glory it's a very mysterious prophecy in the Old Testament because you have a, a human figure going to the God and Lord of all and sharing in dominion and power and glory. Um, certainly in a fallen world, this is tough to, to make sense of, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, how could a human figure receive all of this from God and in a sense kind of share in the reign and rule of God? Of course, we see that unfolded wonderfully and beautifully in Christ, don't we? Christ is the Son of Man. He is both God and man. So insofar as he receives this eternal kingdom from the Ancient of Days, he is doing so as the God-man. And as we've been seeing in the, the evening services in recent weeks, that's so important to keep that in mind, that Jesus continues to be both God and man. He continues to live as our representative, as the mediator of the covenant of grace. And because he continues to have this human life, this human resurrection life, we know that we have the same thing in and through him. And so as the Son of Man, uh, Christ brings us, in this, even in this passage, to the glory of the incarnation. And with all of this, we ultimately, we want to know when, right? Because this is the Son of Man uh, coming to receive power and great glory this will be the time when the heavens will be shaken, when uh, the fabric of reality will come apart. And certainly we think about that and we say, how, how are we to be uh, joyful at such a thing? We want to know when. And Jesus says clearly uh, in this passage that though he's not going to allow us to circle the calendar in terms of the coming of this day. In fact, Jesus says toward the end of his life that it is the Father, the Father who knows uh, when the day is. So not going to circle the calendar, he says simply, when this day comes, you will know. And that is the parable of the fig tree here in this passage. When you look at a fig tree and its, uh, its leaves begin to sprout and its fruit begins to come into bloom, 
then you know that spring and, and summer are here. It's a late in spring and it's early in summer. Whenever it is given to that tree to, uh, to sprout and to bloom, that is the time that has come, right? If you look at a fig tree, you don't need to be a, a botanist, right? Uh, you don't even need to uh, major in horticulture to know that that's how you interpret what a fig tree is. We've got a a future horticulture major we're sending back to college this week. So maybe David this summer can teach us about fig trees, right? So you don't need to be a major in horticulture to know what's going on with the fig tree. When its leaves sprout, when its fruit blooms, that's the time of year. In other words, Jesus is saying that you don't, uh, when this day comes, when this day of wrath, when this day of glory comes, Everyone will know what is going on. When you see the heavens shaken, when you see the unmistakable signs, you will know that the day has come. If we are on the earth, if any of us are on the earth on that day, you will not need to call your pastor. You will not need to consult Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. The day of the Lord will be completely unmistakable. Grew up uh, in my home. There was this book. It, it, It... had sort of all these maps and charts of the end times and all of these treaties that are going to be taking place on earth and, and these kind of vast webs of connections. And certainly in, in this passage, we see Jesus is saying, you don't need some kind of complex system of interpretation. All you need to know is when that day comes, you will know. But this brings us to the, the Uh, The stunning, well, first I should mention Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all of this has taken place. And some people have taken that to mean, well, Jesus must mean that the people around him will still be alive when all of these things happen. So he must be talking about 70 AD. In some way, we've got to make 70 AD and the destruction of the temple fit into all that Jesus says here. But if you go to the Gospel of Luke and you see what he means when he says this generation, what he means is uh, the wicked and unbelieving generation that is always on the earth and always going to be on the earth until the end. This world will always be filled with those of unbelief, with those who do not believe the word and the truth of God. There will always be this wicked and unbelieving generation. The challenge to us is to to be found among the faithful, to be found among those who believe. There's uh, books being published and and speakers who go on speaking tours who say, if you want want there to be less Christians, what you need to do is you need to treat them with hatred and vitriol and mock them and belittle them and tell them how primitive they are to think that their God is going to come from heaven riding on a cloud of glory. You need to, to, to show them and tell them how, how silly they are to believe such things. The challenge to us is to be found, not among this generation of unbelief, but to be found among those who cling to the truth of the word of God. And Jesus says here, it's fascinating, as he tells us the truth of, of what is going to happen on that great and awesome day, And even though it will be so fearful and and the things that are going to happen, we cannot even put it all together. What is all going to mean? Jesus says, stand up. Straighten up if you are on the earth. Look towards heaven and essentially to rejoice. Why? Because the day of our redemption has come. The day of our redemption has come. 
Just to show that Jesus certainly is talking about the end of all things here. Notice how different it is than what he says to do when Jerusalem is under attack. He says when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, run. Get get out of the city. Run, head for the hills. But he says, but when you see the heavens shaken, don't run. Stand, straighten up, look up into heaven and rejoice. Another contrast, of course, is what Jesus tells his people to do in comparison to what the people of the earth will be doing. The people of the earth are going to be hiding. They're going to be frozen in fear. They're going to be fainting. Perhaps people will die of shock and despair. God's people are to know what is happening because he has told us. In a way, it relates to all things, that, uh, or how Jesus has told us to approach all things between his two comings, right? People of God are not to be gripped by fear the way the rest of the earth is when calamities and pestilences and famine and wars and rumors of wars come about. Jesus says, do not be frightened when these things come upon you because it is not the end. Now, of course, terror and calamity come upon us, and certainly we are fearful of those things at times, but we need to rest in what God says to us, and the truth that he gives to us in places like Philippians 3.20, where it says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. That is what God's people are to do, no matter what country they live in, no matter what century they live in, they are, their citizenship is in heaven and they're awaiting a savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. If any of us are on the earth when he comes again, may we heed his words. May we rejoice. May we stand up. May we straighten up. Not cower in fear, but may we know that the day of redemption has come. We're all going to know Jesus says, everyone's going to know what's going on. Those who denied it will know that they were wrong. Those who eagerly awaited their Savior will know that the day of their redemption has come. And this is to be a a great comfort for us. A great comfort for us. But in order for it to be a great comfort for us, we need to look into our lives and make sure that we are not finding our ultimate comfort in this world and finding in the hope and peace and joy that comes in this world. Now, certainly God gives us hope and peace and joy and comfort in the things of this world. And we need to, to rest in those things, rejoice in those things, and, but make sure that we're approaching them the right way. And ultimately, what is our only comfort in life and in death? Where is our peace and our joy coming from? We also need to be mindful to the extent to which we are battling our sin. And training for godliness, as it says in 1 Timothy, or as it said in our affirmation of faith. What does God call us to do? To struggle against our sinful nature all of our life. And as we engage in that battle, we are to to be brought to this place where we say, Lord, I am ready. I am ready to receive my resurrection body, my resurrection life. To be free from the curse of sin and death. To await that day eagerly. And even still to rest in the sovereignty of God as long as he calls us to live down here below. Not to despise the life that he gives to us on earth. To rejoice in the things that God gives to us. This day when Christ comes will be the day that sets us free from the curse of sin and death. We think of Paul's words in Romans 7 where he says, 
O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As he looks at his own sinful nature, he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The, The things I don't want to do are the very things that I do. Wretched man that I am. And certainly we all, we look at our own lives and we see the same things. That which I don't want to do is what I do. That which I want to do, I cannot seem to attain it. Jesus says, who will set me free? He says, thanks be to Christ. Thanks be to Christ, which is precisely what he says in the next chapter, Romans chapter 8. He says, the whole world is groaning in anguish for the revealing of the sons of God. And then he says, even even we ourselves groan inwardly as we await the redemption of our bodies. So live in such a way that you know That you know that if you are found to be on the earth on that great and awesome day, that you will rejoice that he is coming to give you your glorious resurrection body. The same way, it's it's really the same way that we are to approach our own death for those who who will not be on the earth on that day. Uh, Death ultimately is this, this, we approach it the same way that we approach the second coming of Christ. That we're ready. We're ready to be free of sin and death. Certainly, if we join the church triumphant before that great and awesome day, our souls are brought up into the presence of Christ. We're free from sin, but we still await. We still await receiving that resurrection body. So the challenge, Jesus says, my words, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. May we be found not amongst this unbelieving generation. May we be found among those who believe and trust in his words. Jesus says, look then and be watchful. Straighten up when that day comes. Look and be watchful. Be aware of all the things that are going on uh, in your life. Be aware of the kinds of errors you need to avoid. Jesus gives us two of those errors that we need to avoid. The first, you might call it the the prodigal son error. It's there in uh, verse 34. Do not be weighed down with dissipation or drunkenness. Those are two words. When they occur together, it means sort of like um, wild partying, right? Sort of seeking as much pleasure as you possibly can. Thinking to yourself, and it has to do with this great and awesome day of the coming of the Lord. You say, well, if the world is going to end, if it's all sort of coming down, then I I may as well... Uh, gather as much money as I can, sell all of my possessions, get all the money I can, and spend it on my pleasures. Spend it on getting as much pleasure as I possibly can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is living essentially like the prodigal son, not planning for the future at all, and living for your pleasure here and now, in this very moment. The second error is the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Not dissipation and drunkenness, but it's the anxieties of life. You could call that like the Ebenezer Scrooge error. It's thinking, well, one day follows like the next, and it seems like the Lord's never going to return, at least in my lifetime. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, store up for myself as many possessions as I can. Like the parable of the rich fool in chapter 12, where he his life consists in the abundance of his possessions. We need to navigate between these two errors. Not eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Not running into the bar rather than the lifeboat, as one of my favorite preachers puts it. And not becoming so consumed with um, thinking that the Lord isn't going to come back, that you can just store up possessions for yourself. Navigating between those two errors. Jesus says, 
because this day is imminent, because it is unknown. Whenever it comes, it's going to come upon the world like a thief. It's going to come upon the world like a trap. And there will be people caught in either one of those errors, seeking their pleasure in that very moment for themselves or storing up possessions for themselves because they thought the day would never come. Jesus says the day is unknown. It will come like a thief. But again, ultimately we are not to be fearful of this day. We are to await it with eager longing and expectation. He says we are to be watchful. Not to be watchful in the sense that we just look up into the sky waiting for it to happen at any second. But to keep a watch on your life. To keep a watch on your doctrine. To keep watch on your godliness. That we might always be found ready. This is what Second Peter chapter 3 says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. How do we do that? How can we be found without spot or blemish and at peace? Jesus gives us some tangible instruction. I made mention of it all the way back at the beginning of the sermon this morning. He says, be always on the watch and pray. That's keep a watch in your life. Really, we might translate that as be always watchful by praying, right? That is one of the ways that we remain watchful and mindful of the end of all things. Be always watchful by praying. That is, our diligent, regular, daily prayers are what help to keep us watchful. One of the, I think one of the most practical ways to approach this is praying morning and evening. Right? Giving thanks to the Lord in the morning and the night. Remaining diligent and watchful. Not in, it doesn't need to be some kind of you know, an hour in the morning and the evening. But simply that your days are circumscribed by prayer and thankfulness. Regular, diligent, daily prayers help to keep us watchful and help to keep us ready. So look into your life and you ask yourself, do I pray this? Do I pray that... The Lord would make me ready, that the Lord would give me the faith and the courage to, if I am found on the earth on that day, to stand up, to straighten up, to look up, and to rejoice. Am I praying that God would prepare me for that day? And, and even if not for that day, that he would prepare me uh, to meet him if my life on this earth should end. Some of my Better, better moments, better evenings as a father putting the children to bed. Uh, we sing uh, a song. We, we have it in our hymnals. May my soul on thee repose and with sweet sleep mine eyelids close that thou may me more vigorous make to serve my God when I awake. Teach me, dear Lord, so that I dread the grave as little as my bed. 
Teach me to die that so I may rise glorious at the judgment day. Are we praying that God is making us ready to stand up and straighten up with confidence at the coming of Jesus? And it's important to understand then as we bring this to a close that it's, it's not as if we look at our day, we look at our life, and we evaluate the prospects of our confidence in terms of our own performance, our own godliness. We say, wow, I, you know, I feel like I really kept all ten commandments today. I'm really, I'm really ready for Jesus to come back today if he comes again because look at, look at all the things that I did. Scripture gives us a different way of thinking about this. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That's in the Gospel of John. The same apostle, the Apostle John, wrote the letter of 1 John. He expands on this idea of abiding in Christ. He says this, Now, little children, abide in him. And by that, he, he doesn't mean just young children. He means all people in the sense that he is... Uh, a leader in, uh, amongst God's people, those uh, he's equipped to train and to teach the people of God. Abide in him, he says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Abide in him, so that when he comes, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John says, abide in Christ. Abide, abide just means to remain. Remain in Christ. In other words, remain in faith in Christ. Abide in the life that you have in the risen Christ. That heavenly life that he gives to his people in the covenant of grace. That the covenant of grace is the sphere of God's activity. We are brought into that covenant. And God, through the power of his spirit bestows upon his people this heavenly life. We're drawn more and more into it as we hear the word preached more, as we attend to the sacraments and to the means of grace more and more. God is drawing us into that heavenly life so that we become people who take more delight in the righteousness of God's law, the the boundaries that he gives to us in saying, I delight in that life. I know that it is what God has given to me so that I flourish. John says, practice righteousness because we have been born of him. Right? John doesn't say, start at your practicing righteousness. You know that if you practice righteousness, you have been born of him. No, you know that since you have been born of him, you make a practice of righteousness. In other words, those who are justified will be sanctified. So you connect all of this to what Jesus says in Luke and his second coming. We must remember that uh, the fact that we know not the day or the hour and thus we must be kept vigilant and watchful trusting in the gospel of grace as much today as we always have, right? We don't, we don't leave the gospel for something else. We don't move past the gospel and then trust in ourselves. We abide, we remain in the righteous one, in Christ, as we are made to reflect his image more and more each day. The end of the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men. 
that they may shake off all carnal security, right? All fleshly security, all security in ourselves. To shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. So, brothers and sisters, keep watchful by praying. Keep watch on your life and your doctrine, your godliness as you abide in Christ. Don't leave the gospel for something else. You stand in the risen one because you stand in him. You were beaten. You were tortured. You were crucified. You have been raised to new life. Pray that by the Spirit's work in you, you might live a life pleasing to the Lord. That if you're found in the earth on that day, you may straighten up. You may look up. You may rejoice. No matter what, that God may keep you watchful. You may look to that day and say, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Father, may you be pleased to equip us in these ways to build us up, to look forward to the redemption of our bodies, eternal life, life in heaven, in Christ and in him alone. We pray in his name. Amen. Let us